Well, dear friends, if you would uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We are coming to the conclusion of the Gospel of Luke and those who are tracking things. Um, we've been in it a long time. Uh, we plan to have just two more sermons in this Gospel, um, and I'm kind of sad to see it come to an end. Uh, but we'll, we'll soon endeavor on a short topical series on the love of God, and then we'll be moving to volume two of Luke's work, which will be the book of Acts, and we'll make our way through it. This morning, we're focusing our attention on kind of the second half of Jesus' parting instruction here in verses 44 to 49. And before we read His Word, let's ask the Lord to instruct us in the heart. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, You tell us that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from God's mouth. So Lord, would You feed us? Would You show us our need to hear from You because the Word itself is light and life to the soul? Father, we pray that You would take Your eternal truth and press it to our hearts. Show us Your grace to us and make us respond as we ought. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? I'm going to read beginning in verse 44 to verse 49. This is the word of our God. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Last week, as I said, we began to explore Jesus' parting instruction to His apostles. And we have in these verses a summary of 40 days of teaching to equip the apostles to carry the gospel to the world. We saw last time that Jesus is not giving them new content. He's just telling them again what He had told them, only probably this time with some more details, of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And further, He's made it plain, not only that the Old Testament is the authoritative Word of God, but that Christ's person and work are the Son and center of the Old Testament witness of every portion of Scripture, the law, prophets, and psalms. So if you want to know Christ, if you want to appreciate the faithfulness of God in Christ, if you want to grasp the whole sweep of God's grace culminating in Christ, then you have to immerse yourself in the Old Testament. Well, as the apostles heard these words, reinforcing what Jesus had been saying for the last three and a half years, King Jesus now opens their minds to understand the dullness caused by sin and their own misunderstandings of what the Christ would do is now removed by the grace of Jesus in the heart. 
that was a strong reminder to us that the work of Christ within us by the Spirit is necessary or we'll never grasp any of God's truth. We need grace to understand grace. John Newton sings of this when he wrote Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It was grace that brought conviction. It was grace that brought understanding of grace. God's grace takes the initiative. And He does that here with the apostles. Well, now that these men have had their eyes enlightened, they're given a mission. Jesus explains to them what they are to preach, where they are to preach, and how they are to carry out this mission of preaching in light of their weakness. Because who is sufficient to carry the gospel to the whole world? In themselves, they could never do that. But by the power of God, directed by the Spirit of God, laid upon the foundation of Christ, that's exactly what they will do. Seeing the church go out and beat back the gates of hell. Well, there are three things we're going to reflect on in verses 46 to 49. And we begin with doctrines to proclaim. And I'll tell you up front, we're going to spend most of our time on this point because this is really what I think Jesus is hammering home to them. Doctrines to proclaim, and we see it in verses 46 and 47. With their minds now open to grasp how the Christ is revealed in the Old Testament. That Jesus is, in essence, the basic content of the big picture. Jesus now gives them the ABCs of Christian doctrine, we might say. All of which are found in the Old Testament. And we see this starting in verse 46. Now we're starting in the middle of the sentence there. But He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should, or better, must suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. Four biblical doctrines are highlighted here which are to be the very foundation or content of the apostles' preaching. First, as these men with understanding now preach the gospel, they must show the great truth of how the Christ was prophesied to suffer. Now you remember, this is the very thing that the Jews missed. They had no categories for a suffering Savior, a Christ who would be crucified. As Paul will later say in Corinthians, that very doctrine is a stumbling block to them. How can Messiah be cursed? Yet that doctrine is the very core of the Gospel. For without the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, we could never be saved. Indeed, this was the plan of God from the beginning. Peter will later write in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Jesus is foreknown as the Lamb slain the one who would redeem God's people with precious blood before the foundation of the world. Everything that's unfolding throughout the Old Testament, culminating in God's plan in Christ, is God bringing about His eternal purpose. Our Father was not figuring stuff out as man kept messing up. No, the triune God had made a covenant of redemption in the councils of eternity where the Son of God consented to suffer to pay our debt of sin. And that suffering is immediately alluded to in the very first promise of the Gospel. In Genesis 3.15, I hope a verse that by now you've memorized because you keep hearing how important this verse is. 
you remember immediately upon the promise that God had made uh, of life if they didn't eat, immediately upon that, Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve, basically telling them that God is not giving you enough. God is withholding from something, something from you. And Adam and Eve take and eat, and they bring us all into sin and ruin. And then God makes a promise. You're all dead. Forget the whole thing. No, that's not the promise. He says a child will be born of a woman. And Eve's line is going to crush the serpent's head. However, as the Savior will deal a mortal blow to the adversary, He Himself will be crushed in His heel. Now that's a figurative description, no doubt, indicating the very place the serpent would strike someone trying to stomp on him. I don't recommend that you stomp on snakes, but if you did, you may very well be struck in your heel. And it's a picture of the victorious Savior yet being struck. Now, we know the serpent, the devil of old, doesn't physically sink his teeth into Jesus' heel. However, as the devil stirs up the sons of disobedience to rage against Jesus, to betray Him, accuse Him, beat Him, condemn Him, kill Him, what happens to Jesus' heels? They are pierced to bring an end to Him. And yet this cursed death, which appears on the one hand to be Satan's great plan exercised through wicked men to destroy the Christ, we come to find out was actually God's plan all along to bring about redemption. And we can track it through texts like Genesis 22 where Abraham was provided a lamb as a substitute for Isaac. For the Lord will provide the lamb for Himself. Or we can look at Exodus 24 as Moses seals the covenant with God's people by sacrificial blood, the blood of an ox, and he takes a hyssop branch and he sprinkles it on the people. And he said, as the fresh, warm blood splattered on the people, and just imagine that for a moment, feeling the drops of blood hitting your face, hitting your hands, strongly indicating to you that you can only draw near to God with sacrificial blood. Moses then said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord our God makes with you. Those words should sound very familiar because Jesus comes to the Lord's Supper when He initiates that covenant meal and He changes one word. They had heard, this is the blood of the covenant. Jesus now says, this is My blood of the covenant. He is the fulfillment of all that the sacrificial system meant. It was only a shadow pointing to Him. He is the fulfillment of the shed blood of bulls and goats and lambs. And those things could never take away sin. But Christ will come to suffer for us. And that suffering of Christ is echoed further in Psalm 22. You remember the cry of dereliction, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm goes on to get very specific, echoing Genesis 3.15 of heels being struck. The, the servant says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. We get no explanation in Psalm 22 of why there's a piercing. But Isaiah 53 tells you specifically, the servant of the Lord was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Brethren, I'm only highlighting here some of the most famous passages predicting the suffering of Christ. There are many more. But the point being made to the apostles is this. If you are to proclaim the Scriptures, the plan of God for salvation, you must preach Christ's sufferings. And you must not be ashamed of His cross. A striking declaration that Jesus was the cursed one of God. Because this becomes the very means to explain how we are saved. Our debt of sin could never be paid for by our suffering. We've offended God's infinite justice and we are owed a punishment that lasts forever. But the God-man who is infinite suffered for us, paid our debt. Jesus is not suffering for any crimes of His own. He suffers as our iniquity is laid on Him. Do you see, beloved, He is struck for us. And this is an expression of God's faithfulness and love. Indeed, the marvel is that God would be pleased to take our wrongdoing and lay it on Jesus and crush His Son that we could be rescued. For who are we that we should be shown such love? We don't deserve a substitute to die for us, but yet God gives a substitute graciously and the plan of God is playing out. Jesus is ready in the love of the Father to walk into the gates of hell, as it were, that He might love us to the end. And brethren, how will you respond to that truth? That Jesus has loved you like that? The prophet Zephaniah says, here's how we should respond. Sing aloud. Shout. Rejoice and exult with all your heart. Why? For the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. That doctrine must be preached and we must glory in the sacrificial blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because our present deliverance and all of our hope is wrapped up in the redeeming blood of Christ. That is why you have peace. That is why you have security. That's why you have everlasting joy. Are you glorying in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? And have you determined likewise, beloved, that your life will be shaped by His cross? that you will suffer with Him because Christ is more beautiful, more precious than anything this world would have to offer. So when the wicked comes to attack you, you count the reproach of Christ as greater than all the treasures of the world. Will you look to God and thank God that He has redeemed you though you have nothing to offer Him? He's redeemed you only by crushing His Son in your place. What a glorious doctrine. But there's a second doctrine, verse 47, that the Christ must on the third day rise from the, from the dead. <clears throat> if the Messiah suffered, if He was pierced, crushed, and died, and then remained in a state of death, there would be no salvation. Sin and death would prevail to the devil's great delight. But Scripture foretold of the Savior overcoming death. Psalm 16 speaks of God's Holy One not being abandoned to Sheol, not seeing corruption. Psalm 22 talks about the Savior being rescued from suffering and He will then proclaim the Father's name to His brethren. He can't do that if the piercing prevailed over Him. Isaiah 53, which is very clear to say the Savior dies. He's buried with the wicked in a rich man's tomb. But this crushed servant who is a sacrifice for guilt, will somehow yet 
see the people He redeems, and have a prolonged life. David was also told in 2 Samuel 7 that his coming son would be a forever king on a forever throne with a forever kingdom. And you can't have any of that forever stuff if you're dead. Clearly, these declarations are telling us that the Christ will be raised. And then there's the third day pattern of hope in the Scriptures. When was Isaac delivered from death and a rammed ram offered in his place? Genesis 22. On the third day. When was Pharaoh's cupbearer restored according to Joseph's interpretation of his dream? Genesis 40. On the third day. When was Hezekiah healed of his sickness leading to death? 2 Kings 20. On the third day. When did Esther go before King Ahasuerus to plead for her people, ultimately leading to the deliverance of the Jews? On the third day. When was Jonah vomited up by that great fish and put back on the path of obedience, being delivered from death? Jonah 2. On the third day. Are, are you hearing a pattern here? And maybe all of this culminates in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, where Israel is told, due to their sin, God will be like a lion to them. They will be torn with none to rescue. He will strike them down, but on the third day, He will raise us up. Jesus is the very fulfillment of Israel. Remember how Matthew applies the history of Israel to Jesus. Matthew 11, referring back to Hosea, sorry, Matthew 2, referring back to Hosea 11, out of Egypt I called my son. Israel is God's firstborn son, Exodus 4, but it only points to Christ, who is God's firstborn son, who would suffer for us and then rise from the dead for us. This is the truth you must preach, Jesus is telling His apostles. Because without the resurrection of Jesus, as Paul will tell us, we're still in our sins, our faith is vain, and we have hope only in this life. But with Jesus' resurrection, we have a living hope. We have the hope of the glory of God. Christ's victory over the grave brings us assurance that God has indeed accepted us because He accepted Christ's sacrifice for us. And everything that threatened us has been washed away. We have the hope of everlasting life. Do you remember Jesus' glorious truth in John eleven twenty five? I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. Furthermore, everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Death will not prevail. If you're united to the living Christ, death holds no sting for you. And yes, of course, in this life we all grieve the losses that we face and some of them are strikingly painful to us in an ongoing fashion. But Christ's resurrection has assured us that we can grieve with hope because fullness of life has been secured. There will be escape from the curse. There will be final deliverance. So we rest our faith on the fact that God has fulfilled His purpose in bringing Christ as the deliverer from death, that is the King over the grave. And the question for us is, do we see the faithfulness of God in rescuing His Son? Do we see how this establishes an imperishable hope for His people? Are you and I right now living with hope, knowing that we have a future, knowing that we have an eternal 
destination. That pleasures forevermore are awaiting us at God's right hand. That doctrine must be proclaimed. And we must therefore live as more than conquerors in Jesus Christ because death will not get the last word. All of your present suffering and sorrowing is going to flee away. Suffering won't win. Pain won't win. Disease won't win. Death won't win. That is a glorious truth and it must be proclaimed. But there's more to declare. The apostles must also proclaim, and I'll join these two together, verse 47. They must teach, the Scriptures teach, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name. The first two doctrines, the death, the suffering and death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, are focusing on what God has done in Christ. But now there's a response called for to Christ's work. <clears throat> what is the response? Repent. Turn from sin. Lay down your life of evil and go God's way. Now this repentance is something that we must do, but it is not meritorious. We don't get a merit badge because of our repentance. We're not adding to Christ's work with our work because the repentance is preached in His name, which means we solely look to what Christ has done and we're accepted on the basis of what Jesus has done. We're seeing the grace of God offered in the Gospel, and then we lay down our evil ways. It's like Israel in Numbers 21 when they complained and wanted to go back to Egypt. And the Lord sent fiery serpents to bite them. And they were dying. And then the grace of God gives them a way of escape. He told Moses, make a bronze serpent, raise it up, and whoever looks at that cursed thing, a snake pierced on a pole, Whoever looks at that thing and trusts my word will be given life. Look and live. That's the declaration. Well, the whole thing proclaims repentance. You know that you've sinned. You're struck with your own evil, which is spelling your doom. You're dying. But you turn from your state of sin and look to God's gracious provision to bear the curse for you. And you're delivered. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, Jesus said, that all who look to Him would have life. That's repentance of life pictured. You look to Christ cursed in your place and you turn from your sin with grief and hatred of your sin, but turning to God who is offering you mercy in Jesus. And if the sinner turns from his wicked way, what does the Lord say will happen? I want you to listen to how the Scripture puts this. It's not a new message. Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he, that is the Lord, may have compassion on him and turn to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That is a staggering message of grace. In Christ Jesus, the Lord will forgive the sinner. Though you are guilty by nature and you deserve to die under the curse of God, you are set to face the fiery hell if you continue on in your wickedness. If you look to Christ, there is full, free, and immediate cleansing to the one who trusts in Jesus. God is ready to forgive everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. 
And brethren, while repentance is here being stressed, you have to recognize repentance and faith go together. For in turning from your sin and self-reliance, you are necessarily casting your soul on the Lord Jesus, trusting that He can deliver you. Well, have you done that? Have you run unto the Lord knowing that there's free, full forgiveness found in Him? That thorough cleansing will come to my heart because in Christ there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That message must be proclaimed in the name of Christ who has authority to wash the guilty sinner Again, this pardon of sin isn't purchased by your repentance. It's purchased by Christ. But you must turn. The first word of the Gospel is a very unpopular word. Repent. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus came into Galilee saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. This is the message the apostles must proclaim. Repent. And they are to proclaim it. Note that word. It's the word for being a herald. A herald of the king announces the king's word and only the words of the king in the king's authority. So Jesus is calling these men to be ambassadors to represent Him and tell sinners what they must do in response to what Christ has done. And dear friends, as we sit here this morning, what an amazing thing that God has planned to save sinners through Christ. What a wondrous Gospel. As we trust in Christ, God will not count our sins against us, but give us grace to turn from sin and rest in the Lord Jesus. Are you overwhelmed at these doctrines? Some of you are probably sitting there saying, yeah, I heard this my whole life. You should rejoice in this. You're not owed this. Are you astounded that the darling of heaven would come and be thrown to the dogs, that you could be redeemed, that He would face the cursed death of the cross, that forgiveness and mercy could come to your soul? Have you looked on Christ and delighted in Him? And have you seen that He is worthy of your service? What a gospel! What an amazing truth! These are the doctrines that must be proclaimed. And I tell you, brethren, if these messages aren't preached, the suffering of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, repentance in response to Christ and the forgiveness offered in Christ, if those messages are not preached, there is not faithfulness to God's Word. That is crucial for you to get. Now, I know that you're here this morning and not at some other church. But if you ever go to a church that doesn't preach those doctrines, they're not preaching what Jesus said to preach. This is the heart of the matter. May we embrace it and rejoice in it. But now, moving on secondly, see with me. Not as long as that first point. The destinations of their declaration. Into verse 47, Jesus says that these doctrines should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now while the Jews despise the Gentiles and care nothing for Gentile inclusion, that was never the plan of God. What God had promised, as He gave a promise to Adam and Eve, was that there would be a Savior to rescue those from Adam's fallen race. That's not just one people group. We're all sons of Adam. So the message of salvation must be for the nations. And it's elaborated on. 
as God made a covenant with Abram. He told him in Genesis 12, and then more particularly in Genesis 22, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That's the Gospel in seed form. In other words, the coming Savior's work will be for all peoples. That's why the Gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. Because the preaching of the Gospel will be the means by which God rescues the lost, those in darkness, from their sin. Faith comes by hearing the Word and hearing the Word of Christ. So Paul says, you need preaching. Every nation, tongue, tribe, and people must be told. For, Isaiah had said, well, the Lord had said through Isaiah, it's too small a thing for my servant to simply raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah, maybe more than any other prophet, lays out this plan to save nations over and over and over again. The Lord says to all peoples, Isaiah 45.22, Turn to Me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Now it's undeniable that God gave special privileges to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They receive the Word of God, the law, the covenants. But they were never the exclusive possessors of blessing. God's mercy is too big to be confined to one people. Christ is too great a Savior to be limited to one nation. Yes, salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus told the Samaritan woman, but then He saved that immoral wretch and changed her life. Jesus saved the Gentile filled with a legion of demons and put him in his right mind. Jesus showed mercy to many who were not of the covenant people. And it reminds you, or we should, of Ruth the Moabitess and Rahab the Canaanite and Ittai the Gittite who's from Gath of the Philistines and Jethro the Midianite. The Old Testament had been the story of God's grace. And that story will continue as the Gospel goes to the nations. And dear friends, as we sit here this morning, 2,000 years removed from the redemptive work of Christ, seven time zones away and 6,500 miles roughly, as a crow flies, from Jerusalem, we are hearing the Gospel of King Jesus preached to the nations. And we far-off Gentiles are being brought near by the blood of Christ. We are experiencing right now the faithfulness of God to do what He said He would do, to save people of all nations. Is that exciting to your soul? That you're participating in seeing the faithfulness of God right this second? Do you doubt that God is faithful? Your whole life is proof that God is faithful because He saved your soul. What a gospel! But then notice as they take the gospel to the nations, they're supposed to start in a particular place. Jerusalem. Now, you should ask yourself, why there? When these are the very people who maligned and murdered the Son of God, if anyone deserves to hear no more appeals to mercy, it's those people in that wretched city who said, let His blood be on us and on our children. They have in essence condemned themselves. And yet what would reveal the wonder of grace more? than for salvation in Jesus to be proclaimed first to them. 
Do you want to see the Father's heart to save sinners through Christ? Well, look at the command to take the Gospel to those Christ killers and tell them, if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, even you can be washed. God is willing and able to save you. Beloved, this is another proof to us that the blood of Jesus can indeed make the foulest clean. There is no one too dirty to be saved. You need not despair that there's that person you know who could never be saved. No. No. He or she could. Because God's grace is more powerful than sin. They only need to call upon the name of the Lord. Finally, see with me. Directives and empowerment in verses 48 and 49. Jesus ends these parting instructions summarizing the 40 days with them, telling the apostles of their unique role. He says, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Of what things? You're witnesses of seeing the Scripture fulfilled. Of seeing the Christ suffer according to God's plan and be raised on the third day. And you, apostles, have a special role as eyewitnesses of all the above. Now this concept of being a witness is crucial to volume 2 of Luke's work, the Acts of the Apostles. Eleven times this word is going to show up designating the role specifically of the apostles. Peter, for instance, will say at Pentecost, after he preaches the resurrection of Jesus, and of that, the resurrection... We are all witnesses. And the very theme of the book of Acts will be serving as Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and unto the end of the earth. In the book of Acts, it will be about Peter and Paul taking the gospel all over the world. But the point being made right here is the apostles have a unique and foundational role, an unrepeatable office, While all who believe in Christ are the witnesses of Christ, telling others of the hope we have in Jesus, we all bear witness by pointing others to the infallible, inerrant, authoritative message of the first witnesses, the apostles. Our testimony is built on their testimony. It's one reason why we say in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The doctrines we proclaim are the very doctrines Jesus gave to the apostles. And we simply spread their foundational message as the witnesses of the risen Christ. We're not adding to their message. We're not taking away from their message. Now as the apostles are given this foundational directive to witness, they don't go forward in their own strength. Jesus tells them, verse 49, And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is clearly talking about the outpouring of the Spirit given at Pentecost and prophesied in the prophets Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Zechariah, all speak of it. These weak men, like nature with us, will be agents of change by the power of Jesus Christ. But just in case they were to begin to think, because they're so excited at what they've seen and what Christ has done, that they can carry this message in their own strength, they are forced to face 
their weakness. As Jesus tells them, you've got to stay in Jerusalem and wait for power to come. You cannot stand down the forces of hell in your strength. You cannot go forward with this gospel where you're going to be assaulted and killed without the strength of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the very word witness you'll recognize in English, that's where we get the word martyr from. They, they, these men, all but one, will witness to their deaths, but they will have the courage to do it. Not because they're so courageous. You've already seen how much they're scared like little girls and run off and scream and say, well, I can't do this. No, they're empowered by the Spirit of God. They're utterly dependent upon the Spirit of Christ to equip them. And think of the grace communicated here. Not only has there been grace to save these ragamuffin apostles, fishermen, tax collector, uneducated dudes, not at all impressive. Not only has there been grace to reveal to them the resurrected Christ. Not only has there been grace to make them understand the Scripture. Not only is there grace that they would be the ones permitted to witness for King Jesus, but now there will even be grace to equip them to do the witnessing. Grace to go witness and grace to empower your witness. You can't do this by yourself. Jesus calls them to be servants and then He gives them the ability to serve so that all the glory might be His. It is all about His grace. And so it is with us. Dear friends, we are not those with the privilege of initially walking with Christ, seeing Him, touching Him, hearing Him, but grace has come to us to save us, to open our eyes, to make us understand, to make us want to talk about our Savior. And grace meets us to empower the service we have to offer. Truly, the grace of God in saving and equipping sinners is staggering. And what response should you have? Well, you shouldn't sit there like a bump on a log. You should swell in affection to the Lord and bless His name. And you should go forward to be a witness of the glory of Jesus Christ because there's nothing like this Gospel. How can you not tell of the great salvation found in Jesus? Well, may we do so. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we stand amazed at Your grace to wretched sinners. And Lord, as we ponder these doctrines to declare that of Christ's substitutionary death for us and resurrection for us, Lord, we pray that we'd respond to it as we should with faith and repentance. We pray that we would know the forgiveness of our sins. And we ask, O oh Lord, that You would help us to take this Gospel in a different way than the apostles, yes, but still witnessing of the love of Christ to our soul. Lord, would You equip us to serve You as we should? Would You fit our mouths to bless Your holy name? And would You help us to believe the truths that have been declared in our hearing? And we ask these things in the name of Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.